So with that being said, let me give you some context, okay? The Apostle Paul is wanting to go to Rome, wants to go to Rome to preach the gospel because he knows if he goes to Rome and he can preach the gospel, he can influence the world. The problem is he gets to Rome and he gets put in prison 24 hours a day, locked up, every eight hours or so, gets chained to a new guard, and the dream that he had to preach the gospel has now come to the point where he's in prison. How many of you guys know that's probably not according to plan, right? Didn't happen that way. But Paul has an interesting, powerful perspective in this time that allows him to go through what he's going through in a way that will speak to us today. Listen, out of all the situations of anyone that I know right now, Paul could have had the most anxiety, not knowing his potential outcome, how long he would be there, whether or not he would live. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words in Philippians 4 that we've heard before, that we'll hear again, and that we'll commit to our spirit, and it's this, Philippians 4.4. Rejoice. Everyone say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. And then he says this, the Lord is near. Would you just underline that, circle that, or on your smartphone, highlight that. The Lord is near. And then he makes a statement. Remember, from a prison, do not be anxious about anything But in everything or in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How in the world is a guy who is imprisoned, not knowing what's going to happen next, have the ability to say, hey, don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. Paul's the kind of guy you look up to in the Bible. You kind of go, man, that guy, man, he was close to the Lord, and the Holy Spirit was moving through him. Let me give you the title for the message today. The series title is I'm Anxious, but let me give you the title for today in week one. You ready for it? Here's how it goes. I've had it. Uh Uh-huh. You ever been there before? Some of you with children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you not with children, you still know what I'm talking about. I've had it. You ever just been there towards anybody, a spouse, a friend, your job, your financial situation? You have nothing else to say other than I've had it. We've all all been there. There's a principle my mentor taught me years and years ago, and I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I didn't want to hear it, and at the time, I didn't want to believe it. And here's what he said. He said, Rich, your best preaching will come out of your personal experiences. That's what he said. He said, you will be a better communicator, preacher, whatever you want to call it, when you learn to preach out of what it is that you experience. And at the time, growing up in church where I did and the church I was at at the moment, um, and even a little bit to this day, it wasn't right for a pastor to pop up on stage and to let people know the issues that he was going through or she was going through because they had to keep everything together. They had to be the strong ones. They had to be the ones that when everything was falling apart, they couldn't be falling apart. And if they did, they came across as being very weak. So when I heard that statement from my mentor, I kind of did like what some of us do sometimes where we're going to kind of agree with someone to their face. It's usually when you smile and you go like this, but in your head you're going, whatever, man, there's no way. I'm I'm not believing in that. You ever done that before? It's like you want to avoid the conversation, so you just smile and nod. Uh, If you're married, that goes a long way. (laughs) smile, nod, (laughs) in your head, just keep to yourself, don't say it. I didn't believe him. Three years ago, 
had a complete paradigm shift and thought, oh my gosh, this was 17 years ago when I heard these words. And three years ago, the knucklehead finally got it. Man, he's right. He is right. For years and years, I bought into, I don't know if it was a lie, or I bought into what I thought was the correct way of doing things as a pastor, which means I'm going to keep everybody at a distance. I'm not going to let them know my pain. I'm not going to let them know my struggle. I'm going to hold myself together. I'm going to look at my wife and say, we're going to go to church today, and we're going to hold ourselves together to minister to people because that's what we do. My kids are young, but we've had pep talks before. I'm going to go to church. Life is good. Couldn't do that. Three years later, today, I'm so thankful that I've got to a place where I can be very real, very open, and very honest. Transparent, I think is what we call it. You see, all along the Bible has been screaming, this is okay to do. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my, what's that word say? Weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. So let me just say this right out of the chute. This series, the next four weeks, was really birthed and born out of some of the really the most darkest times of my life over the course of the past three years. And many of you guys have walked that journey with us, and some of you will go, I have no idea what it is you're talking about, and we'll kind of get to that. But really, I'm going to preach what God has shown me through three years of walking through very dark times. And I'm going to be transparent enough to say there have been times when I have taken this stage or walked these aisles or roamed in that lobby where I have bought into the lie, you just got to fake it until you make it. And I was miserable, completely miserable. And I know this enough to be true, that a lot of people walk life with a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, a lot of worry, and they're very good at faking it. What I'm asking in this series is that you would be transparent enough to yourself to say, hey, you know what? This is something that I'm going to begin to work on. And here's the great part. Here's the hope. It's going to get better. People say, man, can you really, really be anxious for nothing? Answer, yes. You can be anxious for nothing. Look at your neighbor and just say yes. There you go. You said it yourself. Some of you, you didn't look anywhere because you're going, I don't think so. <laughs> I ain't buying into that. Man, this world's crazy, right? Do you know there's a book out? Uh, it's on Gen Z. Uh, Gen Z, and they recently came out with statistics that show that if you're in Generation Z, in other words, you're young, you are literally the most stressed generation this world has ever seen. Did you know that? Now, this is like scientific people who can back all this stuff up. I guess they're really good at what they do. Here's what they said. It's the most stressed generation there is because from the time you hit high school, you start to think, okay, where am I going to college? Now, if you start thinking about college, then you start thinking, okay, I'm going to have to get a loan. Then you go through college, you get the loan, you spend a lot of money, and then your next worry is, okay, I hope I can get a good enough job to pay off the massive loan that I just got to get this job, right? Then you go from, okay, I've got the job, now I'm single, I'm ready to mingle, where are they at? 
And then you start to panic about all of that, right? But then you find a person, and your only prayer is, is I hope they're not psycho the closer I get to know them. Or you're the psycho, and so you start kind of like, okay, I'm in a relationship, and you're like, cool, we're going to get married. So now I've got a loan, I've got, uh, I've got a job, now I've got a wife, and we're going to try to go two to three years without any kids, but oops, it happened. Now we're having kids. Oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. I don't know what to do. So then you start having kids, and you realize they're selfish, and they want everything, and they don't care what you think. They don't want to do what you want to do. They do not want to eat what you want to eat. And they're going to let you know about it, right? So then you're going, ah, job, spouse, kids. And then here's the thing. When you have kids, you realize they're there for a long time, long time. Some of them go beyond 18 years old. We live in a new generation. It's like, man, I'm staying home as long as I can. And you're just going, no, get out of here, right? So now you've got this going on. And then you start to think, well, cool, now I've got a car. And then it starts to break down. And then this happens and that happens. And all of a sudden, man, you're just like done. And you're so full of anxiety. Ah, this is you. And then you get time off. And it's almost like, have you ever heard something so loud? And then it cuts off. And there's like this little noise going through your ears. That's how some of us are with life. Like life finally slows down. You're like, whoo. Okay, what is that noise? Silence? What is silence? I don't know what to do with silence. And life just goes and goes and goes. And it all goes all the way back to this whole idea of like, man, what am I going to do with my life? But then it gets crazier. Then you start adding on expectations and you start adding on dreams and you start adding on more responsibility. And you're just at the point where like, man... Is living a life without anxiety even possible? And of course, the answer is yes. So let me give you the big truth for this series, okay? In four weeks, we'll dive through Philippians 4, but we'll take a story from the Bible, and we'll talk about anxiety, depression, fear, worry, all of that. But it stems from this big truth, okay? Here's what I believe about anxiety, and it goes like this. Anxiety is an opportunity to draw closer to God, you see, anything you face in life that's not of God is now an opportunity. My friend Chris David said this, you don't have problems, you have opportunities. Every time a problem arises, don't call it a problem, call it an opportunity to do something about it. Your anxiety or fear or depression or worry is an opportunity for you to draw closer to God. For what did it say in, in Philippians 4? It said, the Lord is near. So could it just be that when we're facing anxiety and it's not going away, have we not allowed the Lord to get near to begin to help us? So that's the big truth. Over the course of the next four weeks, that's what I want going through your mind every single time. Every single time as you go throughout your week, if anxiety comes, you begin to go, perfect. This is an opportunity for me to draw closer to God and to get near to him. Now, we're going to look at a story um, in the Old Testament uh, with a guy by the name of Elijah. Say Elijah. Okay, now many of us know Elijah. We also know Elisha, who was his protege. Elijah is a very interesting character in the Bible, and I, I love that we're going to unpack his story here a little bit. But in this story, he's an Old Testament prophet, and he's loved by many, um, and, and, and he's, he does a lot of great things, and we'll get to it. But this guy struggled with anxiety, and I don't know if we've ever quite seen it this way, but I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture where I'm going to show you that this guy was riddled 
with anxiety and depression, fear, and even thoughts of suicide. How many of you guys know when you get to that point, you, you've, you've given in to anxiety, depression, and fear when you get to that point? His name is Elijah, and, and in the context, he begins to prophesy to a very angry king by the name of Ahab. Now, Ahab was a king, and here's what happens. Elijah the prophet goes to him and says, look, here's the deal. Because of your sin, your land is going to go into a drought. There's going to be no water. And King Ahab knows, that, look, here's the deal. If that's going to happen, my kingdom's going to fall. It's going to be completely over. So what does he do? He doesn't let the prophet do his thing. He doesn't turn to God. He tries to kill Elijah. So for three years, Elijah goes on the run. He's out of here. He begins to run. Well, he eventually gets to a place as he's going through this time where he gets confronted by 850 false prophets. How many of you guys know that's a lot of liars in the room right there? False prophets. And this story goes, it's one of my favorite stories in the Bible, and they start to mock him for the God that he begins to believe. And so they begin to have this standoff. And Elijah, full of power, full of God, starts to have this dialogue. And to make a long story short, he calls upon God, and God sends fire from heaven. And all of a sudden, all of the liars are gone. They're dead. So don't, don't be a false prophet, because that could turn out really bad. They're gone. From that point on, Elijah continues to go, and miracles begin to break out. I mean, it's such an his his life is an interesting read, okay? But here's the problem, and here's where anxiety in his life begin to happen, okay? Everyone say one. All it took was one person in the story of a guy who is literally just called fire from heaven, has performed miracles. It takes one. Now, don't get mad at me, ladies. One bad woman. Whoa, hello. (laughs) One bad woman. Now, here's the deal. Her name's Jezebel, and she's married to Ahab. And she pretty much looks at Ahab and says, look, if you can't get the job done, honey, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to take this guy out. I mean, Jezebel made Ahab look like Mother Teresa. She was like, I got this guy. So she begins to go, and what happens is is Elijah catches wind of it, and he goes into a full-fledged depression, full of anxiety, because of one, one woman, and it could have been a man, I get it, but think of all of the things that he's done, and one grumpy woman gets to him, and here's what he says, 1 Kings 19, verse 3 and 4. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Want you to, we're going to notice some mistakes that he makes right here. He left his servant there, and while he went himself a day's journey to the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and he prayed that he might die. And what does he say? I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, let's just pause here for a moment. Everything's going good. The one lady gets to him, and the guy starts running for his life. Eventually gets to a place where he's literally like, God, I'm done. I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. And it's from this story, from these simple verses that I want to draw to your attention four mistakes that he made that some of us, if not all of us, 
maybe one, maybe two, maybe all four, that we've made at some point in our life. But I want you to think about this. Isn't it amazing how one thing can tip the scales? You ever notice that? One thing. Mom, you've cooked 1,900 great meals for your children. 1,900 times have come and gone. No thank you. No rinsing off of the plate. It's thrown into the sink with everything attached to it. And then on the 1,901st time, guess what? You've had it and you're done. One thing. You're in a relationship after relationship after relationship. And what happens is you're trusting them, you're trusting them, you're trusting them. And they break your heart. And they lie to you. And on that one time, you're done. You've had enough. That coworker that drives you up a wall, you've walked in patience, walked in patience, walked in patience. But that one more time, you're done. It's amazing how one more time can tip the scales. And anxiety, depression, fear, anger, malice can begin to come. It was the same for Elijah. And it's probably the same for us today. So let's talk about four mistakes this guy made. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you the four points. And I'm going to give you some things that you can do to help you with it, okay? So mistake number one that we make, that he made. Number one is we run ourselves into exhaustion. This is how anxiety comes. This is how worry comes. This is how depression comes. You literally run yourself into exhaustion. Now, if you look at the map, it says that he ran to Beersheba from where he was. 100 miles. That's a long run. We have people out today running the whole marathon deal. Don't come close to this one. 100 miles. And he runs himself into exhaustion. Some of you, you, you know me very well. Some of you know me really, really well because, well, we're related. I had that same tendency to just simply run myself into exhaustion. It's just what I do. I'm crazy. They did the CrossFit Open the other day. I did it twice in one day. What was I thinking? I don't know, but I did it. Not smart. But just in life in general, man, I could just run and run and run. And the times where I have not found a rhythm in life and I've done too much are times where I fight depression and anxiety like no other time because I'm out, I'm out of rhythm. And in life, it's kind of the same, it's, it's the same deal. A lot of people run themselves into anxiety and depression and all of that because you just keep running. It's from this event to this event to this event to this event. Got to please that person. Got to do this right here. Got to do that right there. Oh, wait, I have my own like, personal expectations. Got to do this, 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 and this. But when you get home, you're done at the end of the night. You haven't accomplished it, and now you're down about yourself. And now you feel like you're not equating. You're not doing what you should be doing. And then you feel like a failure. And because you feel like a failure, you don't want to be around people. And because you don't want to be around people, you're not isolated, and you're left alone to your thoughts, and then depression sets in. And it's because you are running yourself way too hard. You guys have heard me say this before. I don't take a day off. Well, why don't you take a day off? I'm not saying this, but why don't you take a day off? Well, the devil doesn't take a day off. Well, when, when was he supposed to be your example? Like, where'd you get that from? And you just run yourself. Well, the devil never takes a day off, and we're after souls, brother. Yeah, I know. So was Jesus, and Jesus rested really, really good. 
Even when grown men were like completely panicking on a boat, he's down on the bottom sleeping. He'd retreat up into the hills and there he would pray. I'm pretty sure he caught a little nap too. And you just run and you run and you run and you run. I told you I'd be very transparent in this, in this series. Most of the times when I fight depression, it's because I'm running way too hard. I don't give myself enough room to breathe. And so that's a problem. So for some of us, if we look back and we look at the anxiety that we have in our lives, you're just, you're overspent. And you need to stop. And here's a great part. I'm preaching to me too. You just need to stop. You can't conquer the world. You're not as good as you think you are, but you're also not as bad as you think you are. It goes both ways. But you need to do that. So what do we do? What do we do if we're just exhausted? Well, let me just give you some things. You need to find some margin and some rhythms in your life. Listen to me. Look at me very closely, unless you're taking notes because you're type A and I love you for it. There's no such thing as balance. You notice that? Oh, I got it balanced until something very big hits you and then you're off balance. There's no such thing as balance. There is, however, a thing called rhythm. Everyone say rhythm. There's rhythms in life. There's high rhythms. There's low rhythms. You need to learn to determine rhythms in your life where you do need to run a little bit harder and find rest. And then you need to take advantage of the low rhythm times in your life where you can find rest and recharge. And there's a massive difference. Perfect example for me, pastors, leaders, Pastor Triggs knows this, Easter and Christmas, those are high rhythm moments. Those are 70 to 80 hour work weeks. A lot of you guys think pastors just sit in an office and golf and sleep. I do golf and I do sleep. Not during my work hours though. Be cool if I did though. No, I'm just joking, we'll do that. It's high rhythm. But then I've been able to look at my calendar and say, you know what? I can chill right here. I notice a lot of people in our church, you don't text me back the week of Thanksgiving. And after about three years, I realized, cool, there's my low rhythm moment right there. Thanksgiving week leading to Thanksgiving, I take the whole week off. I just don't tell you about it. (laughs) It's low rhythm. Some of you, you need to find some rhythm in your life. You, You need to stop saying yes to everything and start saying yes to the right things. Some of you, you are literally, yes, 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 preaching to myself. I've been there many years. There's a lot of people in this room that can testify to that. You got to start saying yes to the right things. You can't be everything for everyone. You never can. Um, Take a day off. We talked about that. That'd be cool. Like, take a day off. Turn your phone off and take a day off. It'd be cool. And also, too, man, find some solitude. All right, here's Transparent Pastor. You ready? Your pastor sees a counselor because I fight depression. You want to know what he told me? He says, you don't have any solitude in your life. I go, I'll take a day off. He says, that's not solitude. Solitude is a spiritual discipline that you have where you get alone with God and you just sit there and you let God minister to you. I'm telling you right now, it has changed my life. It's huge. So, do that. So, what's a mistake that we make? Number one, we run ourselves into the ground. There are some solutions. Number two, we push people away. When anxiety hits, when depression hits, ah, I need some space. 
And to a degree, absolutely. But notice Elijah, who's running and exhausted, looks at his servant and says, hey, you stay here, I'm going to the wilderness. Does that sound like fun to anybody else in this room? The wilderness normally is not good. Look all throughout the Bible, not good. Jesus goes there, he's tempted. Children of Israel, wilderness, not a good experience. Wilderness is bad. And Elijah goes, hey, look, I'm, I'm going to just pop away here. And he pushed people away. Here's the thing. People are paramount to your success. They're important. If you could make it on your own, God would have created you to make it on your own. But you can't make it on your own. Reminds me of a story. I love this story. It's one of my favorite stories. If you've heard me say it, you get to hear it again because I love it. It's called the barrel of tools. It goes like this. There was a man who was in a work accident, and per company policy, he had to fill out an insurance claim. After turning it in, the insurance company contacted him and asked him for a more specific rundown of the accident. His response is as follows. I am writing in response to your request for additional information for, for block number three of the accident reporting form. I put poor planning as the cause of my accident. You said in your letter that I should explain more fully, and I trust the following details will be sufficient. You guys get ready for a crazy ride. I am an amateur radio operator, and on the day of the accident, I was working alone at the top section of my new 80-foot tower. When I had completed my work, I discovered that I had, over the course of several trips up the tower, brought up about 300 pounds of tools and spare hardware. Rather than carry now the unneeded tools and material down by hand, I decided to lower the items down in a small barrel by using a pulley, which was fortunately attached to the pole at the top of my tower. Securing the rope at the ground level, I went to the top of the tower and loaded the tools and material into the barrel. I then went back to the ground, untied the rope, holding it tightly to ensure the slow descent of 300 pounds of tools. You will note in block number 11 of the accident report that I weigh only 155 pounds. <laughs> Due to my surprise of being attacked, or I'm sorry, being jerked off the ground so suddenly, I lost my presence of mind and forgot to let go of the rope. Needless to say, I proceeded at a rather rapid rate of speed up the side of the tower. In the vicinity of the 40-foot level, I met the barrel coming down. This explains my fractured skull and broken collarbone. Slowed, this is a true story, by the way. Slowed only slightly, I continued my rapid ascent, not stopping until the fingers of my right hand were two knuckles deep into the pulley system. Fortunately, by this time, I had regained my presence of mind and was able to hold on to the rope in spite of my pain. At approximately the same time, however, the barrel of tools hit the ground and the bottom fell out from the barrel. Devoid of the weight of tools, the barrel now weighed approximately 20 pounds. I refer you again to my weight in block number 11. As you might imagine, I began a rapid descent down the side of the tower, and in the vicinity of the 40-foot level, I met the barrel coming up. This accounts for my two fractured ankles and the lacerations on my legs and lower body. The encounter with the barrel slowed me down enough to lessen my injuries when I fell into the pile of tools, and fortunately, only three vertebrae were cracked. 
I'm sorry to report, however, that as I laid there on the tools, in pain, unable to stand, I again lost the presence of my mind and let go of the rope. Fascinating story. What's the point? When you try to do stuff by yourself, you might get hurt. Probably doesn't work out. A lot of us, when anxiety comes and depression comes and fear comes, we push people away. It's dangerous. You need each other. Now, I'm not saying you just go find anybody and you pour your life out to them. I'm not saying that. I believe in the, in the value of processing up. Find somebody in my life who's not impressed with who I am. Find trust and process with them. If they're not impressed with who I am, they will tell me the truth. It's important. Sometimes we get people that are on our same level, and it's not that those are bad, and we go to them with all of our stuff. Listen, never present your problems to a person who's incapable of giving solutions. They'll empathize with you. They'll sympathize with you. But you got to process up. You need somebody who's been where you've been to say, hey, would you help me out? So what do we do? We've got to push people away. Well, first, you need to get the right people around you. Secondly, I encourage you to be in a place of worship weekly. You know, as a pastor, there's, not, there's a lot of things that could break my heart as a pastor. But you know what breaks my heart a lot as a pastor? And most pastors won't say this because they're afraid that they would offend people. And I'm not saying it to offend anybody in this place, but I think it breaks my heart we can give so much attention to everything and not give God's house a priority in our lives. Oh, I'm not going to commit till Sunday until I see if there's nothing else really good going on this weekend. And if there's nothing, ah, then I'll go to church. If that's your heart, friend, you need to pray. You do. Say, it doesn't have to be Sunday. It could be Wednesday. You need to make God's house a priority in your life. Moving on. Another thing is to create memories with people. When you're pushing people away, find some people that you can create some memories with. Grab a group of guys. I, I do it almost twice a month. Grab a group of guys. Sometimes the ladies join us. And on a Sunday afternoon, we go to the golf course and we try to hit this little stupid white golf ball straight. And to be perfectly honest with you, it doesn't really go straight. But I sure have a good time doing it. <laughs> Creating memories. Get yourself around people. So that's the second mistake. First one, we run ourselves into the ground. Number two, we push people away. And number three, we focus on the negative. That, that's, that's, what, that's what Elijah did. Man, she's going to come and she's going to kill me. I'm out of here. <laughs> Takes off. He's running. Got negative. The conversation he had with the Lord, take me now. I'm done. Has anybody ever noticed it takes zero effort to be a negative person? You notice that? Comes natural. It's easy to be a negative person, but listen to me. Some of us, man, we just got to kick negativity out. I always tell my, young, my, I tell my boys all the time, here's a goal in life every single morning. Just literally punch the devil in the throat. <laughs> I say it to him every morning. What I mean by that, man, is serve God. Man, just karate chop him in the throat. My boys are, I mean, they're boys, okay? I got to use verbiage that helps them. Serve God, hit him. 
But man, negativity, man, you, you got to get that out of your life. And listen to me, if you got the wrong people in your life that are negative too, you need to kick them out of your life for a season. And I say for a season because you need to get positive and then you need to go back in and be light to them and help them come out of their own. I can't, listen to me, I, I've been negative too, so I'm not saying I'm not the only one. Like everyone, look at your neighbor. They've been negative too, okay, I'm not saying. But listen to me, I'm doing, in the season that I've been in for three years, I have literally had to block myself this sounds really bad, from negative people. Now, as a pastor and a minister, I'm, I'm always around people. I'm not saying, like, I'm going to, listen, if you're negative, I'm not going to avoid you. I'm talking, there's, there's relationships in my life where they're just negative, and they don't build me up, man. They, they, they make me go more down. So you, you got to block that out. So, so what do we do? Well, very simply, you need to replace negative thoughts with God's thoughts. That's important. If you're, if you're bound by negativity, you, you need to stop imaginations from running wild in your head. Some of you are putting scenarios in your mind of how things might go, and they're negative. You need to stop that. It only makes it worse. That's how worry comes. You begin to worry about something that's not even going to happen. And then you get accountable to someone. Number four, and we close. Number one, we run ourselves into the ground. Number two, we push people away. Number three, we focus on the negative. But then number four, we lose sight of God. Notice Elijah's life. Used by God, performing miracles, and, the, and it all comes, anxiety comes, and he forgets about God. But here's what I love. God doesn't forget about him. Look at 1 Kings 19.11. The Lord said... Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord. For the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire earth wind and fire it's a little nod to some of you older people in the room today <laughs> but the lord wasn't there what does it say and after the fire came a gentle whisper morgan come here real quick Maybe you're here and you're facing some depression, fear, anxiety in ways that you can't. And you're like, God, where are you? Life is loud. Things are happening. People are leaving. Finances are falling apart. I don't like my job. All this craziness is going on. The wind's going. The fire's going. The earth shaking and some of you are like God I know this isn't of you God I should not be anxious God I should not be worried I should not be depressed and all of this stuff is going on and you're looking for God in some big huge moment to just sweep in and fix it all you're looking for the the Disney swirl where the thing goes like this and the frog thing turns into a prince you're just hoping that it just magically changes. It doesn't. 
Because God wasn't in any of that. Elijah's running for his life in fear for three years. And he's looking for God for some big old crazy moment. And God is in. Everything I just said, did you hear that? Oh, he did. Did you hear that? No, 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 no. You didn't hear that. Because I was whispering. Philippians 4, the Lord is near. The answer to your anxiety, your worry, your depression is for you to draw near to God so God can simply Some of you say, I don't know where God is. He's near. He's in the whisper. But you've got to get yourself before God. And you've got to get all the noise, all the stuff, and just throw it out. You've got to stop being negative. You've got to stop pushing people away. You've got to do the things to get close to Him. Because sometimes a whisper will sound just like a Sunday morning message. Sometimes a whisper will be when your word is open in the morning when no one else is around and you're reading God's word, his breath. See, I don't know what God sounds like. He sounds exactly like his word. And he whispers. And I'm here to tell you, Next week, we'll talk about how do we really pray when we're facing anxiety. It's going to be a message on prayer I don't think you've ever heard before. The notes are already done. I almost wanted to share today and skip week one. I'm going to teach you how to pray in a way you've never prayed before to get rid of anxiety, depression, and fear. But the Lord is near. Amen. He's near. Would you stand?